Women's Health Melbourne is an innovative, holistic fertility and women's health practice. We are world leaders in IVF and egg freezing and provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our hand-picked expert team provides the ultimate care experience for our patients. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr Rayleigh Alou. Hello and welcome to Knocked Up, the podcast about fertility and women's health. You are joined as always by me, Geordie Morrison, and Dr. Rayleigh Alou, CREI Fertility Specialist. For our next few episodes, we will be joined by embryologists from Melbourne IVF. Today, we're speaking with Yvonne Stu about embryology in general and how life begins in the lab. Yvonne has over 10 years of experience as a clinical embryologist and is currently one of the senior scientists and a team leader working at the Melbourne IVF Embryology Laboratory. Welcome, Yvonne. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It'd be nice to start if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you became an embryologist. Yeah, sure. I've been a clinical embryologist for 10 years and I'm currently one of the senior embryologists and team leaders at Melbourne IVF. And so what did you do at uni? Oh, I I started um, Bachelor of Nursing and and then moved on to higher education by completing the Graduate Diploma of Reproductive Sciences and Master of Clinical Embryology. So you were very, very interested in becoming an embryologist from a very early time point. Yeah, at the end of uh, my nursing degrees, actually. And the idea of becoming an embryologist means that creating new life and supporting people at their most personal and vulnerable state. And to me, it's a job that really can bring out the beauty of humanity and that it combines the caring and sympathy and empathy and the great medical scientific advancement. And what would you say are the best parts of your of your job on a day-to-day basis? I really love how it and it's very versatile as well and there's a lot of lots um problem solving involved and help helping family to achieve their dreams while working with amazing people daily is definitely one of the biggest plus for me. Today, uh, Yvonne, we're going to talk about life beginning in the lab, which is an amazing topic. It is, yeah. Can you walk us through life as an embryo? How do we all begin and what happens to us in those very early stages of human life? Yeah, so we have to start with an egg and a sperm. So we start with egg from the female female party and then we will get the egg through the what we call egg collection process. And when we retrieve egg, we will also later on mix them with a sperm and when they fuse together when the normal fertilization occurred then we will have what we call an embryo this ego what are some of the signs that we look for to tell us about fertilization when do we look for them and what do they mean we assess fertilization on day one and in the morning what we look for is what we call 2 p.m um in a normal fertilization process, one will be coming from the egg and then one will be coming from the sperm. 
and that will tell us that the now the embryo um, consists of normal chromosomal numbers, which would be 46. So 23 comes from the egg and 23 comes from the sperm. Um, we do observe also abnormal fur, and that will be that can be the case as in 1 pn or 3 or even more than 3 pns. So we kind of can tell which embryos have potential based on on that. Sometimes, Yvonne, sometimes I have a patient who has a change in the number of embryos that have been observed to fertilise, uh, both in the positive and the negative way. What do you notice in the lab and when do you notice it that, you know, kind of gives us that update? Yeah, so we normally typically assess them in the first thing in the morning. Um, but sometimes what can happen is, depends on what the methods of fertilization was, it could be either through conventional IVF or it could be something called ICSI, which is where we inject a single sperm into a single egg. Um, and because of that, the process of fertilization, the timing can be different. Um, and for IVF, typically it takes 24 hours for the fertilization that we can observe. And then for ICSI, because we bypass all the natural process for the sperm trying to enter the egg, that can be actually one hour less. And also because of the technical uh, methods that we use in the laboratory, um, we can put, we put them into what we call embryoscope slides, um, embryoscope viewer for um, different, at different time. So that means the images we we're getting is is we get more images for those ICSI cases compared to IVF cases where we really were putting them a day about 12 hours later compared to the ICSIs. So that's when we normally don't have any discrepancies between the ICSI cases, but for IVF, it can be, it can be more common. Then the 2PN can come a bit later. Is that because when the sperm and egg are in the dish together, we can't tell the exact moment that the sperm entered the egg? Yeah, that is correct. And for IVF, because we're mixing them, in the, we need to culture them overnight. So there's extra process involved the next day, which where we have to then denude the eggs first and then put them into a different dish for us to assess the fertilization. Whereas ICSI can be done on the day, which was day zero, um, right after the injection. So we get that in a bit, a bit earlier. And you mentioned about the, the DNA number of chromosomes. Just to clarify, what we see in the embryo, and we have two pronuclei, is that they've, as an embryo, the embryos inherited a set of DNA chromosomes from the sperm and from the egg. One of the problems that does happen a lot as women get older particularly is that the number in that package of chromosomes can be the wrong number. Um, what we can tell when there are two pronuclei is that the package has arrived from the egg and from the sperm. But just to clarify for our listeners, that doesn't mean that the embryo necessarily has every chromosome correct. Um, but when we see that there are three pronuclei, or one pronuclei, we know for sure with the three pronuclei uh, embryos that there's a whole extra package that shouldn't be there. And with the one pronucleus embryos that there's a, a missing package that should be there. Would you say that that 
is how you would explain it too? Yeah, definitely. And and that can be caused by um, a lot of things. One of the things would be if it's 1pm, then that means uh, one of the eggs or the sperm, they, they don't contain the correct amount of chromosome. Um, and when it comes down to extra packs, that it could be multiple for a conventional IVF, it could be multiple sperm enter the egg rather than the one, um, or that the egg is fa- they failed to extrude that extra set of chromosome during division. Yeah, and that's important because eggs start out with four times the amount of DNA that they're going to ultimately give to a baby, and it's their job to chuck out a package of DNA at the time of ovulation and or around the time of ovulation and it's actually the ovulation surge that starts that cascade reaction and then the egg also has to chuck out another package of dna both of those are called polar bodies and they're what we call asymmetrical cell division so they've got the same amount of dna that the egg will end up with but you know after the division but they're much much tinier because the egg maintains what we call it cytoplasm or cellular makeup and it just chucks out the dna in a small tiny round circle called a polar body. So if we don't do that properly, the egg is really unable to make a baby because it has way too much DNA and the embryo is unbalanced. So Yvonne, we used to, in IVF for many years, do embryo transfers very soon after fertilization on day two or day three of development. Nowadays, we don't. What do we look for and what do we want to see on day two or three embryos in the lab? So on day two, typically what we would like to see in the morning is that the cells have been equally divided and becomes into four cells. That is what we like to see. And also we look at other signs such as fragmentations. The less the fragmentations, the better quality the embryos. And what what are some of the signs of things not going as they should? Um, So like I said, fragmentations will definitely be one of them. And also the fact that we could have something we call reverse division. So what can happen is that you normally start with one and divide to two and two become four. Um, And it could be that one one become two and two go back to one. And that's something called a reverse cleavage. And that normally indicates very low potential of the embryo. Or we can have something called unequal division. So one become three, and then later on three become six. So really ideally you want it to be even numbers. So again, those embryos will lead to low potential. And why does this happen to some embryos? While they divide, the cells had to go through a lot of checkpoints and each checkpoints that basically is telling them, yeah, right now it's the right environment, right now it's a good time, and now I can divide. So every time before cell division, the, the embryo needed to do those checks. So at any time when the environment, whether it's external or internally is incorrect, they tend to not divide or divide in a abnormal manner. So Yvonne, on day four of, of life, on day two and three, the, the cells in the embryo are getting more and more. And, and like you mentioned, we like to see it be kind of exponential and, and, you know, kind of one cell become two, two become four, four become eight. 
when we get to day four, something different happens and the embryo becomes a morula. A what? What does it become? Uh, it becomes a morula. That's the name of it. Can you tell us about why why we've never done day four transfers? Why is it always day two or three and then day five but never day four? What is it about the morula that we would never put a morula back? That is a, a great question. Um, on day four, as you said, lots of things are happening and this is when actually um, this great shift of what takes over in terms of the embryo growth. Um, typically from day two, day three, we can very easily count the cell numbers. Um, whereas on day four, as you mentioned, when it becomes morula, that's when the cells start to tightly packed together and what we call scientifically tight junctions start to form. And that's when the embryos start entering to preparing become blastocysts. So it is a very critical stage. However, at this stage, the reason why we don't typically do transfer was because it is so much going on. It's almost impossible to count the cell numbers. And also before it's entering the blastocyst stage, it doesn't give us any information about how it will develop on day five, whether it's going to form a viable inner cell mass or trifectidum cells. So at this stage, typically, it is very, it gives, um, as you can say, as much information or as little information. So yeah, it's either we typically do the transfer before or after the day four. Yeah. And I guess from a patient perspective, we don't necessarily from a lab context feedback to the patient information about day two to day four for that reason that we can't really prognosticate and we've moved to day five embryo transfers most of the time for most people not always there's always exceptions to the rule but for most people most of the time we think day five transfers have better outcomes what's so special about day five and and what's so special about a blastocyst yeah, so day five um, is where we can see whether the embryo made that extra step from a morula. And at that stage, we were able to assess the developmental stage of the embryo, whether it, form, it has become a blastocyst or whether it has still, um, it, it, whether it's arrested or not. And also what we can see is inner cell mass cells and trifectodum cells. And the inner cell masses later on become the fetus and trifectodum cells are the cells later on become placenta. So it will give us all this extra critical information that will contribute to a healthy pregnancy. Um, and that will be that will enable us to select whether the em which embryos for transfer or for freezing for the future. So Yvonne, when embryos make it to blastocyst on day five, um, they've obviously done everything right to that point from the developmental perspective. And metabolically, we think they're probably strong because they've done it in a short period of time. Some embryos haven't made it to blastocyst yet, though, on day five. What happens to those embryos? And, and can you tell us about their potential if they haven't made it to blastocyst on day five just yet? Yeah, um, and I... Going back to what I was saying about the cell um, checkpoints, so uh, they're still undergoing all the cell checkpoints. Anything was not quite right, they will arrest, and some arrests can um, they can go back to um, temporary pulse and say, "Look, now everything's good again. I can keep going." 
but obviously that can delay the whole development. So that's why you see some embryo from the same cohort of um, eggs that some just made it to day five right on the time where some just having that little bit of a delay. Um, and it also gives a, as a very good idea in terms of selection because some do take a little bit time, but they do in the end make it to a blastocyst and that can be a very good grade blastocyst as well. If we were to give it a day or two, typically we culture till day seven. So if it's on day five, it's a little bit late, then we do give it one more day to day six and we will reassess. Um, and if it didn't make it to day, uh, if it's still slow, if it's still slow on day six, we will give it one more day to day seven. And if it's suitable for freezing, we will freeze that. But keeping in mind that because they didn't hit those milestones as they should, compared to the embryo becoming blastocyst on day five, they will have lower potential. And with the embryos that we freeze, sometimes we culture embryos on from day five to day six and day seven, and they do make it to be blastocyst, but they haven't met our lab criteria for freezing. What about an embryo on day six or day seven would make you decide that it wasn't suitable for freezing and why? Typically, we don't freeze anything CC grade. The grading criteria that we're using is Gardner grading system. So where the first number, it will be something, for example, 4AA. And the first number four um, indicates the developmental stage of the embryo. And then the first letter A is the inner cell mass grading and A being good, B being fair and C being poor. And then the second letter A indicates the trifectodum cell grading. Again, A means good and C means poor. The reason why we don't freeze any CC grading is because typically C means very few cells and even, even very, very minimal cells or cells already dissociating or become degenerated. And those embryos, they have not only they have very low potential to give a viable pregnancy later on when we freeze them, they also may not survive the freeze and the warming process. And look, I think that's really important for patients to understand because every time a patient undergoes an IVF treatment, whether that's a transfer of a fresh embryo or a transfer of a frozen embryo, there's a lot invested in preparation for that embryo transfer. It takes you know, at least three weeks to prepare the uterus to receive the embryo. During that time, a woman is coming in for ultrasound monitoring, checking of her hormone levels with blood tests. Uh, there are costs involved to the patient. And so what we want to achieve as a specialist and as a lab uh, is to give that patient a really good chance of success. And where we draw our lines in the sand, it's when we think that the chance of success is so low that it doesn't warrant transferring the embryo given how much burden of preparation there is for the patient. So it's it's our job, I think, to make everything as optimal as possible, both medically and scientifically for our embryos, but we also uh, do make sometimes harsh decisions acting in the best interests of our patients. Yeah, that's a very, very fine balance. So Yvonne, you've told us about the Gardner grading scale for assessing embryos. We now have artificial intelligence as well. And sometimes in the lab, we choose the artificial intelligence score 
over the Gardner grading system. How do you choose an embryo when you have a, a cohort of embryos for a patient? Let's just say you have two, three embryos frozen for a patient or two, three embryos to choose for on day five for a patient. How do you choose which embryo is going to go back first? The AI score is really the algorithm um, that helps to analyze each of the patient's embryos and then provide a score um, correlating to the likelihood of implantation. And for us, it's an assisting tool. So it will be particularly helpful when we have a lot of same grade embryos so a lot of things that when we assess as scientists is uh, mainly based on morphology of the embryo and where they all look very similar, then we can rely on the AI score to help us to further select which embryo might be the best. Um, it is because just because the way that it has a deep learning during the program development, so it was set up that way that they may pick up, the computer may pick up something that we miss um, with our naked eye. However, keeping that in mind, that is that it should always be used in conjunction with scientist scoring. It should never be used as a sole selection tool. Just because also um, the other way to look at it is that they can also mistake in some stuff that they see as something that they're actually not. And when scientists look at those images and pulling the, all the pictures together, that's when we can see, ah, that's actually not the case. This is why AI is giving a higher or a low, lower score, which is actually not really true. So it's putting putting two and two together, using all the tools we have, um, using technology while acknowledging that technology is still developing and is in its really infancy in terms of AI scoring of embryos and um Obviously, we highly value the expertise and care of our clinical scientists and we're not trying to do away with them with machines. We're just trying to make their life better and, and make the process of selection more accurate. With embryos that go back on day five, sometimes we culture on, like let's just say if we weren't going to transfer an embryo, we culture on. Some embryos we would transfer, but we wouldn't necessarily freeze at the same time point. One of the clinical reasons for doing a transfer on day five, particularly in a stimulated IVF cycle, is that the medications that we use to provoke multiple eggs developing do end up maturing the lining of the uterus called the endometrium much faster than in a natural cycle. And so the window for implantation is narrower. So while a blastocyst might only be ready to implant on day six, in a stimulated cycle, we can put the world's best blastocyst back on day six and it can't find a home because the endometrium has closed that window of receptivity. So there are some embryos that we would transfer on day five potentially, but that in a freeze context, we keep growing them in the lab. Can you tell us about why we do that? The best way to explain it is that an embryo will wait for the uterus, but the uterus won't wait for the embryo. So as you mentioned that once we miss that tight window of receptivity, and that's it for the cycle. Um, whereas for embryos, we can, the embryos is very dynamic and it, Again, it can sense the environment, even coming 
out of the warming, the whole, you think about the whole IVF journeys, it is still able to um, have all these biosignals with its surrounding. So it is why, that's why we can not really do day six transfer in terms of a uterus lining, but we can do day six, we can put a day six embryo back in a day five uterus. It's amazing, isn't it? And sometimes we culture those embryos on, I would imagine, so they have more cells because when an embryo has more cells, it will be more robust to the freezing process. Yeah, the freezing criteria is a little bit different from the transferring criteria. And also um, when we do transfer embryos that we would normally freeze, also because when we do the assessment typically in the morning, that can be a little bit early too, whereas they, the embryo will grow along the day too. So it's a dynamic process. It never stops growing. So by the time when we have the transfer, this is also why um, it's not uncommon at time of transfer, you may tell a different grading. It's more advanced grading because the embryo actually grow more since that we looked at it in the morning, particularly if you have a late transfer time during the day. I've definitely noticed that with my patients that sometimes we've had a grading as an early blaster system then by the time we're actually physically looking at the embryo up on the screen on the embryo transfer preparation process, then we can see that it's expanded and looks more advanced. So that does happen all the time. When we transfer frozen embryos, we talk about cell survival, whether that's 100% or 99%. And sometimes embryos have a low cell survival and unfortunately we characterize them as not having survived the warming process. What do you look at when you assess an embryo that has been taken out of the freezer? Again, there's a few things that we look at. Um, first is confirmation of the developmental stage. During the freezing process of the embryo, we want the embryo to be dehydrated so it can actually protect the, the cells during freezing process. And at warming time, we want the embryo to be rehydrated. And, and that's when we can see the embryo start to re-expanding. So re-expansion is definitely one of the critical points that we assess too. And also the cell survival, as you mentioned before, how many cells has survived um, the freezing and the warming process. And that gives us a good indication of whether it can become a viable pregnancy. And that if it's lower than 50%, then we deem it as not survived the warm. And one of the ways I explain that to patients is that embryos are amazing in that they're made up of pluripotent stem cells. So they, the cells of an embryo can become any cell in the body. So embryos can replace cells that they lose on freezing if they don't have too much of a burden of cryo injury, of injury from the freeze. But if an embryo loses the vast majority of its cells or you know more than half its cells, it's unlikely to become a baby no matter what wonderful grade it was when it was fresh. And there's always been this perennial argument in IVF about what's better, fresh or frozen. I guess it's important to realise that while the lining of the uterus is not ideal in a stimulated cycle because of all the hormonal pressures we put on the uterus when we try and mature lots of eggs, the embryo in a fresh transfer is unburdened by trauma that it could 
undergo through freezing and warming. So it's always a balance. Yeah, definitely. It's always a balance. What's your favorite thing about human embryos? It is how dynamic it really can be. Um, and it can go either way. And it's almost that you will, you can make very good prediction. However, they can always surprise you, whether it's going forward or going backwards. So sometimes you really need to uh, pay really close attention. But sometimes you do get some good cues, though, watching those images throughout. You said you've been a scientist for 10 years. We all know that um, ART is a new science. What's the most exciting change you've seen in your time? One of the most exciting things would have been PGT, pre-implantation genetic testing. And that's something that we regularly do in our clinic. And we can see that it helps a lot of patients that otherwise will never achieve a pregnancy. Yeah, it's amazing. It helps us get where we're going. I think it it really, it's such a nuanced conversation, PGT. And we've had other episodes on Knocked Up. If if listeners want to look into our back catalogue, going into PGT in a lot of detail. But it's it's such a nuanced conversation because the test itself is not a therapy. Uh, It doesn't change the embryo. The embryo is what it is. But it helps us find that needle in a haystack faster. And particularly for women at the further advanced end of maternal age who can still make good embryos, it's a game changer because instead of wasting six months of their time, which is very, very precious by having trial, fail, trial, fail, putting embryos back that couldn't make babies because they had genetic errors that were just deal breakers from the beginning, we can find that good embryo, put it back, make a baby. And I've had some beautiful patients Um, with wonderful stories in my practice where we've put some embryos in the bank in their early 40s um, and helped them have a baby and also planned for the future. And then when they come back to see me in their mid-40s wanting to have another baby, finding that needle in a haystack becomes so, so difficult at that age. But because we've put those PGT-tested embryos away for them, they've had success and expanded their family. So my personal view on PGT is that, especially for aneuploidy, it's got a real role in long-term family planning and making sure that we have enough embryos in the bank to satisfy our patients' immediate but also long-term goals and help us win more often uh, with less struggle. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Yvonne. That was fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much. To support Knocked Up, leave us a review or recommend to a friend. Join us on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast and join Raylia at Dr. Raylia Lou. And email us your questions to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. Mm-hmm.